On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. On this episode, we're looking at Dick's only directorial effort, an episode of Miami Vice from 1986 called The Fix. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the Tubbs to my Crockett, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good, Doug. I'm, I'm pretty dang good. Liam, longtime listeners of the show, especially people who've been listening to recent episodes, know that you've been battling some illness recently, uh, and I'm happy to report <laughs> on your behalf that you seem to have made a full recovery. Yeah, I mean, you're overstating the case, but mm-hmm. yes, I'm mm-hmm. definitely not as sick as I was. And that alone is kind of a victory, uh, but I I'm trying not to I'm trying not to be too like oh yeah I'm, I'm really back because I will in a moment's notice overextend myself and get sick again. So sure, I'm right. trying. But you're to take on the mend, certainly. Yeah, definitely doing a lot better than I was because I was really out of it. C- can you do something for me though? What's that? Can you do the John Wick? Yeah, I think I'm thinking I'm back. You got to say that for me. I'm gonna not do that actually. <laughs> Liam, uh, on the intro to our podcast, You Don't Know Dick, we mentioned that we're going to be talking about the film and television career of Dick Miller, but this is the first time we've really turned to to his television career. Now, notoriously, on the podcast that we share together, you hate talking about television. Isn't that correct? I mean, I wouldn't say I hate it. You call Um, it the idiot box, I think, which I don't really appreciate that. Yeah, definitely don't do that. But I'm less excited to cover television, uh, partly because... If it's so, it feels very large to me. Like so, we're we're talking about one episode of Miami Vice today, mm-hmm. and uh, I I feel woefully um, unqualified to talk about this show that I I really don't know a ton about. Right, but that that is I'm glad that you said that only because it's a really good transition into our guest today. Our guest is of course the author of 2020's I Overcame My Autism and All I Got Was His Lousy Anxiety Disorder and the upcoming Work It Out, a mood boosting exercise guide for people who just want to lie down, which is available for pre-order right now, as well as one of the world's foremost experts on Miami Vice. It's Sarah Kirchhoff. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am well, and I'm thrilled to be here and be somewhat autistic about Miami Vice. You know, Sarah, when I thought about the fact that Dick Miller directed an episode of Miami Vice, it made me so happy, not only because I was able to watch a piece of television directed by Dick Miller, but because I knew that it gave me an opportunity to reach out to you because I know about your love and your history with Miami Vice. What is it about Miami Vice that people should care about? Well, I mean, what they should care about today, I Mm -hmm. actually autistically broke this down into a number of points. Um, Historically, um it's it was really a groundbreaking show for its time it was one of if not the first show to incorporate popular music the way that i think Mm -hmm. we think of as just like a normal part of television now they really broke ground on that um it set fashion trends which actually set off a trench foot recurrence because when don johnson stopped wearing socks with his shoes and that became fashion people started getting trench foot again um (laughs) 
<laughs> we got to bring that back. Bring back trench foot. That's what well, I said. Well, it came back as well. Like when the, the Miami Vice shoe style came back a couple of years ago, you can Google it. There's a bunch of articles warning people about trench foot. So it, it's had a great, like wide influence on our culture, both good and bad. Um, and I think it actually holds up well. It's by far like not even close to a perfect show it can be wildly uneven um but when it's good it's really good and half of the time when it's weird it's also weird in a way that is very intriguing very exciting that it was on like mainstream american television television in the 80s being this strange yeah and And there's some weirdness in this episode that we're going to be talking about some very strange stuff indeed yeah it it was like that quite often and it, it the reputation and the legacy it's received has been as like slick, stylish MTV cops. And it Mm -hmm. was all of that on the surface, but lurking underneath, it was always bizarre and often super, super bleak. Mm. And I think one of the other reasons that it's still relevant now, and I think people should care about it, is that it is probably one of the more interesting and ambiguous examples of propaganda that's ever been on American television. Um, That... Like, these are cool cops, and we're supposed to be cheering for them, and they're clearly trying to do right. And I don't think anyone involved in the show ever thought they were saying that the whole system is rotten. But mm. as you follow through and watch these two men struggle against the odds and watch pretty much everyone around them become corrupt, and, you know, spoiler alert for a 30-year-old show, um, the last episode actually features them quitting the force because they know they can no longer function or do good within the war the war on drugs in the system and they throw their badges in the dirt and that is one of the oh. final shots of the entire series now that is i mean that is a bit of a spoiler because i was just starting my journey throughout miami vice and i feel like now i should just give up entirely but be that as it may i'm still excited to hear more about it liam o'donnell over to you for a moment you grew up in the 1980s, like yes. myself. Yes. As Sarah was just mentioning, this was a show very much of the 80s. The MTV Cops is how it was described. Did you have any experience growing up watching Miami Vice? You know, I was told by my mom mm-hmm. that it was one of the shows that I watched somewhat regularly, as well as, um, what was it, Airwolf? The, the yeah, helicopter certainly. show. Jan Michael Vincent, absolutely. Yeah, uh, the A-Team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, as we've talked about before, uh, reruns of Dark Shadows and Tales from the Dark Side. Those sure. were the two I was watching on uh, VHF a lot. But um, I'll be honest, watching it for this episode, it didn't ring any bells. Like, I didn't feel like I knew these characters. Um, I, You know, I, obviously I know they're in Miami, but I'm like, I don't really know, like what the vibe is it all felt very new to me and honestly kind of exciting for that because it didn't feel like returning to something that was super familiar uh which is which is neat but yeah apparently i watched it it didn't leave an impression on me whereas there are episodes of the a-team for example that i actually kind of remember a little bit it's interesting that you brought up those shows airwolf and the a-team i watched some of that when i was a kid as well And that was kind of very reflective. Both of those shows were very reflective of the kind of action shows of the 1980s. Sure. That it felt like in some ways that Miami Vice was sort of a response to. Because it's much more slick than those shows. And it feels in a lot of ways much more adult as well. And it's it's kind of weird to think. Like I, I didn't watch Miami Vice as a kid. It didn't appeal to me because it felt like something for older people. And Liam, now I am an older person. So it should be for me, right? I guess so. I mean, I don't know how much mature you are than you were then but you know <laughs> basically i have i have a i have a question 
Uh, oh, and I boy. guess this is more of a question for Sarah as the as the Miami Vice expert. Woo. Good. Uh, in the sense that um, I have been told a uh, a uh, uh, let's call it a uh, legend about Miami Vice that I, I don't mm. know if it's accurate or not, and that is that uh, there was a, a person on staff who was not just like the art director or the set designer or the costume person, but a person who basically sort of was like uh, the 1980s equivalent of the vibe check who would like sort of walk through scenes before filming and decide whether things were vice or not. You know, like, is this cool enough to be on the show? Does this fit the vibe that the show needs? And if not, it's got to go. and We got to come up with something else. And I don't know where that story came from, but I know many people who think that's a real thing. And it always struck me, though, a very fun story as not possibly re- a real thing. I mean, they had consultants. I don't know if it would have been as vague as a vibe check, but <laughs> right. Well, they wouldn't have even had that word. I, 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 well, I no, want to be but clear. But it would have been yeah, the yeah. same. But it was yeah. like there, there was genuine effort being put into making sure that it was cool by some right. sort yes. of lofty standard. So, so there was I, also was a weird. lot of it that was surprisingly haphazard, like the whole like sure. rolled yeah, up yeah, yeah, sleeves yeah. and going back to the trench foot shoes. Um, that was all done because Don Johnson got lazy and hated the heat. And he was like, sure. you know, screw it. I'm not wearing this suit properly. And that's I, how that entire style happened. It's very fulfilling to me to think it's probably not true because uh, there was a moment in my professional life where I had a boss who told that story. And that was his explanation for how I functioned on staff, that I was I was the vice guy. I was the guy who would like whenever someone had a new idea, I'd be like, yeah, that works or Nope, that doesn't fit, you know? And the whole time he told that story, I liked that he was trying to compliment me, but in my head, I'm like, there's no fucking way that's real, man. Like, that's a bullshit story. I just like the idea that there was someone on set, and if someone was wearing socks with their shoes, he'd be like, you get the fuck out of here. That's not Miami Vice, sir. (laughs) This regular-looking courtroom, (laughs) you get out of here. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what I think it would be. It would probably be less something like like costumes, like at least the way the story was told, and it would be more like, you know, a scout, a location scout picks a courtroom. This guy walks in and goes, this is not Vice. We need a fucking Art Deco courtroom, and we need it right now. Now, I wish I had a story for how Dick Miller ended up directing an episode of Miami Vice. I did as much research as I could. Of course, I, I reread the, the sections in this part of the history of the wonderful You Don't Know Me, But You Love Me book by uh, previous guest Caelan Vatnestil, but just could not uh, find that. The, the, it's interesting. This is the only thing that Dick Miller ever directed or at least ever directed that, that aired um, in any way. No other films, no other television projects. And a second season episode of Miami Vice. And it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't reflect what you would think someone who came out of that Roger Corman camp must necessarily would have done. You know, it doesn't have a lot of like familiar guest stars. He didn't put in Paul Bartel or something like that. It feels like an episode of Miami Vice, which I guess should not be surprising. It's not exactly, can't exactly put your stamp on these sort of things. But Maybe it passed the vibe check. Maybe it passed the vibe check. This is ostensibly a Dick Miller themed podcast, Sarah. What do you know about Dick Miller? Do you have any favorite Dick Miller appearances? So Dick Miller is very much a classic, hey, it's that guy for me. And that I like knew the name. And when I agreed to do this, obviously Miami Vice was the appeal. And I started looking through <laughs> to be like, I know I've seen him and stuff. And it was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that. Um, but I have to say, like, for me, the personal highlight would probably be as the police chief in Rock and Roll High School. Absolutely. 
Yeah. yeah we- I, every authority figure in that film just absolutely understood the assignment and they were perfect in their roles. <laughs> We're going to certainly get to Rockmill High School on this podcast eventually when someone wants to uh, chat about it. But th- that is one of those roles, especially, you know, a gruff police, uh, you know, sergeant, police captain, policeman. It seems like that's the kind of role that Dick Miller has that, that gruff exterior was just perfect for. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other roles before we get more into Miami Vice? Any other roles that you uh, remember seeing him in or that uh, may have, have, have come up recently? Um. Not recently, but, you know, <laughs> probably my first impression of him would have been the Gremlins films as a kid. Certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. Mr. Futterman, the classic one, the one that I think, I think for the most part, it's still his most visible role. It's certainly the one that gets discussed the most on this podcast. Sarah, you have an upcoming book. It's called Work It Out, a mood-boosting exercise guide for people who just want to lie down. Uh, as of the time we're recording this, it has recently gone up for pre-order. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, so... I think it was 2015, I wrote an article for the Dearly Departed, because what website isn't at this point, the mm-hmm. establishment, um, which was just like a n- number of basic tips on how to exercise while depressed from a depressed personal trainer. Mm-hmm. And it blew up and it was one of their biggest stories ever, which is always great because writers are needy and just need all of that <laughs> validation constantly. But like, as a personal trainer, I just started getting really upset because it meant that there was a gaping need for it as well. And that, that a lot of people had been completely left out of how exploitive and cruel and narrow-minded the fitness industry can be. Hmm. Um, and so years later, the editor I worked with on it started working at Quirk Books and was like, hey, what if we made a book out of this? And we ended up doing that. So it's just like a step-by-step guide. There are some basic workout plans in it. And this is for you know anyone who's felt isolated from exercise for any reason. If you're anxious, if you're depressed, um, there's tips for neurodivergent people in there. Um, And the idea is just to learn how to do basic exercise for yourself, just to like hopefully feel a little better each day, Um, but also of how to approach it and how to think of it differently. And, you know, give yourself a little credit because no one in this world has ever failed at exercise because they didn't hate themselves enough. Well, I do worry, Sarah, that there are not enough depressed and anxious people out there. I know. It's uh, such a small market. (laughs) (laughs) This is the perfect book for the perfect time in history. You know, the worst time in history. No, it does sound absolutely perfect. I will, of course, put in the show notes for uh, a place for people to pre-order that book. And, of course, you should. Um, And, uh, I mean... It sounds wonderful. I, uh, I'm i sure it's going to be massively successful. I think all the depressed people listening to this right now, and I think that's pretty much our entire audience, will be out there <laughs> picking it up. I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a little break. And when we return, we're going to talk about episode 19, season two of Miami Vice, The Fix, directed by Dick Miller. Hey, how you doing, Judge? Hey, you want some uh, fruit? Drink anything? What do you got for me? It's all there. Yeah, I'm sure. How much you got on the basketball game? Doesn't make any difference. I'm keeping up on my payments. The difference is I'm worrying about you, Fergie. Now, this is only the interest that you owe me. Have you figured out how you're going to pay off the principal? Not exactly. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I've been doing a little thinking. You know, your uh, son is a hell of a ball player. And he's put himself in a very advantageous position with these playoffs. 
What do you mean by that? Miami loses. I stand to make some money, and uh, you get closer to settling our score. Forget it. After Crockett and Tubbs arrest a dealer, at the bail hearing, the judge sets a low bail. Crockett is curious if there's something wrong with him, so he investigates. It seems the man has a gambling problem, and now he's being told to tell his son, who's the star player of his school, to throw a game to settle his debts. It's Season 2, Episode 19 of Miami Vice, called The Fix, directed, of course, by the great Dick Miller, and written by Chuck Adamson. Uh, only writing credits were on Miami Vice, four episodes of that, as well as the Michael Mann-produced Crime Story, which he also helped create. But most notably, Chuck Adamson is the person that uh, the uh, Al Pacino character in the movie Heat was based on. Uh, that entire story of Heat was based on his, uh, part of his career when he uh, was uh, arrested the famous gangster Neil McCauley back in the 1960s. So he has uh, bonafides, let's say. Uh, of course, Miami Vice stars Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas as Detective James Crockett and Detective Ricardo Tubbs. Uh, and, of course, we also have some other familiar faces that we'll get into as we continue here, including uh, guest stars Harvey Firestein, Paul Greco, Michael Richards, and the great Bill Russell, the Hall of Famer Bill Russell, uh, who's really at the center of this story as the corrupt judge at its core. Uh, I'm going to go to our expert on Miami Vice in just a second, but really I'm curious, first of all, Liam O'Donnell. You sure. obviously were a childhood enthusiast of Miami Vice, even though it's completely been blocked from your memory. <laughs> You've not watched any episodes since, If the, am I correct on that? No other? None. Not have one. not watched the Michael Mann version, the film version of, oh, of Miami Vice? I have Vice? watched that, yes. Okay, so you have some connection with the property. Sure, sure, What sure. did you think of this episode of Miami Vice? Loved it. Thought it was great. Was really sold on it. In fact, I finished it thinking, am I going to start watching Miami Vice? Because like the, I'm not a, hey, let's go back to an old TV show sort of person. Uh, in fact, a friend of the show and a regular poster in the Discord, uh, Mike Dick, will often talk about the various old TV shows he's discovered uh, archives of and how much he's enjoying watching them. Sure. And you might as well tell me you like eating grass. Like, it sounds like the least interesting thing to me to return Whoa. to old TV. It's huh. literally, if you said, do you want to come over and watch an old TV show? I'd say, I'd rather you punch me in the gut. It's not. So you're not going to be joining my podcast going through the Virginian episode by episode. Oh, hell no. But, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I really enjoyed this episode enough that hmm. even before Sarah, by the way, really sold me on it in her uh, talking about it at the beginning of this podcast, even before that, I was thinking, I enjoyed that enough that now I kind of want to watch some more of Miami Vice. And that's just not, you know, when I have free time, Doug, I basically try to either watch movies or listen to music or... In theory, go back to reading, but I, I've basically failed at that for like a, a couple Who of years. Who needs it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. The the, the, the written word is dead. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so like that- With that only idea. one or two exceptions, which we'll bring up in the plugs. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, no. I really do I really do miss reading a lot. And I, and I read sometimes, but just that I used to be voracious, but that's not the point. The point is, <laughs> I enjoyed this episode so much, I really do think I might- go back and start the show, which is like not usually my vibe. Um, now, I will agree with you that I'm not sure everyone who was given lines on the show delivered those lines in a way that convinced me they were good at acting. 
I'll just put that out there. But um, yeah, I had fun watching it. There were elements that were kind of funny to me, but there were also elements that were very serious. And uh, the way that it wrapped up, I kind of fucking loved it. Like, it's the sort of thing, like, I feel like if I tell someone out loud how the episode ended, then it almost like hits someone as it hits you as funny. Like I told Susan and she kind of laughed and I was like, Oh, I guess that is a ridiculous thing. But watching it, I didn't think it was ridiculous. I was like, Oh man. Yeah. Like, like I was like into it. So I don't know. I, I, uh, I guess I shouldn't be as surprised because I, I know a lot of people who love this show and who not just grew up with it, but came back to it later. But I was not expecting to enjoy this episode as much as I did. I'm really delighted to hear you say that. I was not expecting you to enjoy it, to be totally honest with you. I'm a little taken aback. (laughs) Well, because, okay, but to be fair, we haven't covered that much TV together that's very good. We've Mm -hmm. only occasionally covered TV shows that I think are pretty good TV shows. So our vibe as co-hosts has often been me being like, why are we talking about TV? I hate this. And, uh, and, and, this is one of the first times where I watched something that I was unfamiliar with and, and really enjoyed it for this show. But here's the thing, Doug. I do watch a lot of TV because my wife loves TV. And so that's what we watch together all the time. So it's not like I never watch TV. It's just a lot of times going back to older TV shows that I'm unfamiliar with for one episode is not that fun for me. One of the things I watched was the pilot for Miami Vice, which I've watched before, uh, but I watched it just in the last couple of weeks. And Liam, if you are going to watch more Miami Vice, that's certainly the place you should start. It's brilliant. It's really, really good. It's one of the great pilots, I think, of any show ever. Um, but I do have to say, this isn't the episode that I probably should have watched immediately after that pilot, which is not to say that I did not have a good time watching it. I did very much, but a lot of the slickness um, and the production value of that pilot is not necessarily on display here. It still has a lot of the great elements. It still has the interplay between Crockett and Tubbs. And I mean, there's still lots that I really enjoyed in this. But I have to say that at times, I thought it was a little rough around the edges. And that extended a little bit further beyond just the acting, which the, the acting's a little shaky. But we'll talk about that in just a little bit. I need to go over to our Miami Vice expert. Sarah, how representative is this episode of the series as a whole? And what did you think of this episode in particular? Well, it's definitely not a classic that anyone would put on their most recommended, but it has the spirit of Miami Vice throughout it. I think, you know, it's reflective if if you like generally where this episode went and what it did, you're probably going to enjoy Miami Vice. Um, It has everything from the hit and miss guest stars to the like elaborate first scene shot in some ridiculous Miami location that's going to go wrong and tits up in some way that's going to lead to more drama. There's a this bird sanctuary music. in this particular bird case. Bird sanctuary, or, yeah. yes. <laughs> I was hoping this was the episode where Tubbs randomly feeds like a cheeseburger to some animal in a zoo, but I got it mixed up with a different one. <laughs> Um, you've got, of course, the bad interiors that I think we'll be addressing later. Um, Mm -hmm. we start with something that seems sort of, you know, flashy and maybe the cops will do something right, even if it goes wrong right away into sort of the descent where every story that happens is going to affect Crockett and Tubbs, usually Crockett more than Tubbs in some way, and is going to be turned into one more representation of the fact that 
he is losing his soul piece by piece and if he's lucky his body will die before his soul goes because this job <laughs> will suck everything out of you and destroy everything it touches that is an overarching theme in pretty much every episode even like the ones that go off the rails and have alien abductions and miniature bull cinnamon plots um and then of course the great like dino monster for cowards ending which is a classic <laughs> miami vice thing for me <laughs> <laughs> well we'll talk about that in a second as well so just to break it down in a little bit more detail the great nba basketball legend who just recently passed away bill russell plays judge ferguson he's a judge who is crooked uh, because he has gotten into gambling debt he owes a lot of money to michael richards kramer from seinfeld uh making an early appearance here uh and he is being exploited by a lawyer played by harvey firestein in this and basically he feels guilty about it uh, Crockett and Tubbs start to suspect because they, they catch a criminal who is let off very easily. They suspect that he's crooked. They start to investigate it a little bit. And uh, what Michael Richards wants the judge to do is force his son, who is a famous college basketball player, to throw a game in order to uh, make up some of his gambling arrears. So that's basically the, the, the plot of it. What we find is, as this is pl- goes to what you were saying, Sarah, Crockett is very depressed to find out about this crooked judge. And there's a scene where he meets him and talks about how, you know, you're a good guy who just did a bad thing. But, like, the suggestion in the episode is that he's been letting criminals off for, like, a long time. <laughs> like, he's, he's, he's actually kind of a really bad guy for doing that, I think. But, no, Crockett doesn't want to believe it. He wants him to, like, get help, that there's still a way back, away from the precipice. Um, but, no, uh, what happens instead is that he tells his son to play as well as he can. Then he goes to Michael Richards with a gun and shoots him, and then he blows his own head off. Spoiler alert for the end of this episode. Um want to talk about some of the performances here. I've already kind of given my hand Wait, a can little I, bit. Can I, can I just say, though, like, mm-hmm. I know you kind of just went through it pretty quickly, but for me, and this might be because I'm less familiar with Miami Vice. Sure. There were so many moments on this show where I thought I knew what it was going to do. And then it didn't do that. Interesting. And then it ended w- the way it did. And I thought, did a lot of did a lot of TV in the eighties end in suicide? Wasn't this a prestige show? How many prestige eighty shows were like, yeah, and then a uh, famous guy uh, shoot yourself in the head? That's how we're gonna end that. Episode. <laughs> we're just gonna have you blow your brains out, and that's what we're gonna do. Yeah, you murdered a guy, and uh, you could face charges for that, but come on, you're not gonna do that. So uh, yeah, shoot yourself, and we'll just end with with the horror on Crockett's what is it? wait what is it even Crockett's face yeah it's Crockett yeah. Yes. the horror on Crockett's face as he he's watches disturbed. his he, he was, go out the way that he's like he's like don't do this like he's like really does not want this guy yeah, to blow man. his head off in front of him yeah. but he does it and he that's just another thing to add to the list of horrific well, traumatic things the, the show things. starts to go yeah this guy's pretty fucked but like he, he, we established very early on that he's sick right that it's like that whole gambling montage is meant to establish this is not a rational act. This is not some guy who yeah, like is exactly. letting criminals off and then going home to like swim in his pile of money like, you know, uh, uh, Uncle Scrooge or whatever. He's like definitely <laughs> a dude who has a fucking problem. And there are so many ways for him to deal with that problem. The fact that he's like, I guess I'll just, you know, murder suicide it out. I just thought. Fuck, man, is this really how it's going to be? I love it. Like, I I just didn't expect that vibe because I'm just used to so many TV shows either being like, well, he's a criminal, so we have to really, like, you know, have the cops get him. Or, you know, he's an okay guy. We'll, we'll save him. And the show was like, he is maybe not as bad as you think, 
but we're still going to fuck them. I thought that was great. I love that. It is That's certainly like a lot more classic intense. classic Miami yeah. Vice to me. Like, I love it. I can't I wait. I'm going to no watch idea. so much of this show. Yeah. I'm so what excited. What it was about before, um, it was actually a friend of mine a number of years ago. She mailed me a, co- a box set and was like, you have to watch it. You don't understand. You think it's like this shiny thing because you bought into like the the stories you heard as a kid of like the flashy cop show. No, it's weird and it's dark. And once you get into the vibe, you will no longer be surprised by these endings because they just keep coming. <laughs> I mean, certainly a little more intense than the A-Team or Airwolf. That is for sure. Uh, Liam, I want to ask you quickly. Did you recognize the actor Paul Greco in this episode? He was the nervous guy who the cops, they they interrogate him a little bit. And then he goes to Harvey Firestein to try to basically um, get him to represent him in the episode. He has a kind of a weird looking eye, I guess is how you would describe so- him as kind of a... I didn't – well, okay. So I feel like earlier on in the episode, I didn't notice the eye. But then right. later on when he's talking to Harvey Firestein, you can really see the eye is more prominent. And that's sure. when I went, oh, I know this guy. But I couldn't place why I, why he was so familiar to me. Well, I only bring him up because he, of course, is the leader of the orphans from The Warriors. Yes, very, very is. memorable yes. in that film as a complete loser. And in this film – Disrespect the orphans? <laughs> Disrespect I just, the orphans. I like that in terms of all the famous people who show up in this episode, he is the least famous by far, but he is the one that really stuck out to me. I think he's terrific. It, it, sadly, he passed away uh, very young uh, of cancer in 2008. But to get away from that downer of a thing, let's talk about Bill Russell, the great Bill Russell, NBA Hall of Famer, only passed away in July of this year, considered one of the greatest basketball players to ever live, experienced horrific racism in his life, uh, stood against social injustice. Um, I mean, just a great man. Wonderful person, uh, according to so many people. A lot of great tributes over the last little bit. Sarah, tell me about uh, what you thought of Bill Russell's performance in this episode of Miami Vice. Well, I would say he wasn't the worst guest star to ever be on Miami (laughs) Vice. (laughs) Probably in the lower tier. um, He put in a solid, honest effort. Um, He was trying. Oh, absolutely. He was trying, yeah. Um, And oddly, as much as I would look at it and go, wow, that's that's a really rough performance. It it still didn't take me out of the story at all. Like, but it was just like, yeah, fine, okay. He's making these really exaggerated faces and giving flat line readings. But you know what? He's finally breaking even. I'm sold on all of this misery. <laughs> I I felt bad for him, not because of his performance, which is shaky, certainly, and a little rough around the edges. I actually think that his son played by Bernard King in this, also a very famous basketball player who played in the NBA for 14 seasons. Um, he, I think he's a lot worse, <laughs> but he has a lot less to do as well. Yes. But I felt bad because it felt like for a show that is so stylized and has so many kind of unique sets in it that they did not design things for him at all. He looked uncomfortable in his car. He looked uncomfortable in Michael Richards' yacht. He looked uncomfortable in his bus. He just looked uncomfortable because he had to be crouched over all the time. What a bizarre choice in regards to how they decided to put this together. Liam. But he looked thoughts? deeply uncomfortable and Michael Richards' yacht actually looked far less opulent because it had such low ceilings. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And it's not well. like it's not like Michael Richards is a small man either. Like that's you know true. it's not like he's like a, a wee little person, but compared to uh Bill Russell it was like, oh he looks like a normal man. Um where I've always thought of, of Kramer as, as, as a bit of a giant. Uh, here's the thing. I, I agree with Sarah that his performance many times didn't take me out of it. But there were a, a couple of line readings from him where I thought, unless the man only did one take, 
I refuse to believe that was the best take. Like, unless he just was like, I did the line. It's time to be over. I just can't believe that even just a second go couldn't be better. Like, there were, it wasn't a lot. And there were plenty of times when he was, you know, he was doing his thing and he was trying to do it and it was fine. There were just a couple times where I literally would pause the show and go, come on, that could not have been the best take. There's just no way. Uh, But, you know, I do think, like, again, obviously he's not a professional actor and they did choose him for this role for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, What was that reason? uh, Because he's famous. Yes, there you go. And, you know, he did... As far as being a famous man in a show, he did that right, right? And there, there is a basketball theme, so I, I guess it makes sense. But yeah, there was. A, I mean, I agree with you, Doug. His son was not great either. But I, I really have to say, while neither one of them gave a great performance, uh, there were less moments when his son was talking when I thought, why is why is this in the show? There were just a couple of times from Bill Russell where I literally thought, there this. There had to be a better take than this. He they gets really he gets a lot of screen time in this. Yeah, Sarah, he does. Sarah, you mentioned before that this that uh, this performance by Bill Russell certainly isn't the worst guest star performance on Miami Vice. Now, Miami Vice, my understanding is that it was known for its guest star appearances. I know that certainly famous Canadian singer songwriter Leonard Cohen appeared on Miami Vice at one point, uh, as well as lots of other familiar faces, either early in their career or not. So, uh, who is the worst guest star? To ever appear on Miami Vice. This one hurts me to say, mm. but it is John Taylor of Duran Duran. Oh, no. He was, you know, <laughs> infamously, like, that was probably the height of his drug addiction. And he, oh, like, see. almost passes out on Crockett in a take. Um, and it's clearly not intentional and clearly the best take they had because it's in the episode. Um, it's pretty rough to watch. Andy Taylor does a great job of trying to cover for it, but yeah, it, it's rough all around. Bad acting by Duran Duran on an episode of Miami Vice. That is a very 80s thing to say, I Truly. Suppose. I mean, they cast a very wide net in terms mm. of guest stars. So there, there's a lot of like just amazing actors that will show up in their first roles. Like Helen and Bottom Carter was in episodes. Julia mm. Roberts caused Crockett to lose his mind at one point. Um Jimmy and Smith gets blown up in the pilot. He does, yeah, <laughs> tragically, um, which sets everything off and mm-hmm. you know leads to Crockett needing to like trauma bond with Tubbs to form one of the great like male friendships in television history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but they also did. They would cast Ned and like get athletes and get musicians, and some ended up being pretty good. I mean, I do enjoy Leonard Cohen's performance in his episode, and then on the other end, you also get the occasional Bill Russell. Or John <laughs> uh, speaking of other people who made early appearances on Miami Vice, Harvey Firestein is here in an early role. This is two years before Torch Song Trilogy sort of launched his career. He was still doing kind of bit parts at this point, but certainly memorable. That voice is always going to stand out. Uh, Liam, how did you think of Harvey Firestein did in this uh, this episode? You know, it's it's a little. Sorry, bit... Liam, can you respond in a Harvey Firestein impression? No, I can't. <laughs> I thought about yeah, it for half Liam. a second. I, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Um, I I mean it's it's 
though it is an important role, he's not in it as much as you might think, considering right. how important it is to the plot. But when he's there, I mean, his role is to be smarmy. Like, from the moment he shows up, you think, well, that guy's a bad dude. Like, you just know, right? And so then the idea that he's a defense lawyer was that much better because I'm trying to imagine a single judge seeing this guy come in with that smile he seems to have in every scene <laughs> and being like, yeah, this guy's a straight shooter. I believe what he's telling me, you know? <laughs> he just gives off such a vibe, but it really works for this. So I, I liked it. You know, it's I, I kind of wish there was a little more of him, actually, in, in, in the role. But, uh, but what we get is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a great slimy character in this. It's just, it's like you were saying, it's interesting to see because this is before, you know, he, he broke through into more mainstream roles that this is just, you know, kind of a, 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 a nothing role to an extent, but he makes something of it. Sarah, your thoughts on Harvey Feinstein in this? And then why don't you tell me as well, your thoughts generally on Michael Richards as a performer? Well, um, I thought Harvey, Fe- Harvey Feinstein was fantastically like the exact slime ball he needed to be for this role Mm -hmm. perfect for you know part of the underbelly constantly threatening to drag crockett and team under um and as for michael richards like i i can i was never seinfeld fan i resented Mm -hmm. it as a child because i didn't know anyone else who felt the same way um, and so long before there were other reasons to dislike Michael Richards, I was also already quite virulently against him. Um, which, I mean, the repulsion certainly adds to the role here, at least. So that works out. <laughs> it's um, Michael Richards at this point was still was somewhat well known. He'd already made, did a stint on St. Elsewhere. It was on the sketch show Fridays, the kind of notorious uh, show that went up against SNL in the early 80s. Uh, and was, you know, appearing on dramas at this point. But it's still odd to see an actress so associated with comedy and associated with other things we're not going to talk about. But associated with comedy, play this kind of like this role, a gangster of all things. It's fucking Kramer. Maybe it's just because he became so famous with that. But I think he does a pretty good job. I mean, he's um, he's obviously a strong actor and uh, someone who's a very kind of a physical presence. But you were right to bring up Liam. I usually think of him as the kind of lanky tall character that's how he always was on Seinfeld but <laughs> he certainly kind of dwarfed in this what did you think of uh, his performance here it was fine um it is funny how there is something of Kramer in everything he does although this character weirdly reminded me more of his character in uh Airheads which we watched recently for a podcast <laughs> how uh, so <laughs> uh it's funny. I don't. I don't know why, but it just made me think of Airheads. Um, but I will say, like, it, it is interesting seeing him significantly before Seinfeld because he's, in some ways, very different. It, it felt like a. It felt like I was seeing like an uncanny valley version of Kramer. You know what I mean? Like, there's something about him that was very clear from the moment he showed up, but he's also so different in in so many ways. I don't know. Yeah. It, it just was an interesting thing to see. That being said, like, he doesn't bring a ton to the role, and I've never really cared about him. Like, similarly, I've just never really cared about Seinfeld. Like, in my town, <laughs> Seinfeld was the show that was on when I felt like there should just be another episode of The Simpsons in syndication, and instead it was Seinfeld. So I've also always had a bit of a chip against Seinfeld because it could have just been more episodes of The Simpsons. Which well, eventually, with- by the way, it did become eventually more episodes of The Simpsons in, in the Philadelphia area. <laughs> 
<laughs> but everything came up Liam, I suppose. Yeah. I was a big fan of Michael Richards as a kid because he, of course, was one of the stars of UHF, the Weird Oh, Al I forgot. Film, I forgot. Yes. Uh, which was a huge, hugely important film to me uh, in my early uh, early teens, certainly. And, and unlike the two of you, I was a huge Seinfeld fan. So the fact that he is a horrible racist monster is not great. It's a pretty bad thing for me to be thinking about. Speaking of bad things for me to be thinking about, there is some strange set design on display <laughs> in this episode of Miami Vice. Now, uh, you've already talked, Sarah, a little bit about the fact that this was a TV show that um, had a very distinct visual style. Uh, it very much was of its time in some ways. There was a scene in this film after the opening, which takes place in a bird sanctuary. Uh, Crockett and Tubbs, they, they um, arrest somebody. They're put on trial, and we get to see the inside of a courtroom. I don't know if this is a courtroom that we see in multiple episodes of the show or not. Uh, but it's very unusually designed. Liam, if you had to describe the design of this courtroom, how would you describe it? Um, you know, I'm I'm not a master of uh, design architecture. and architecture, oh. <laughs> but I will say it's it it feels very like uh, there's a lot of like strange blocks of shapes, and uh, and and the way that the tables and sort of um, places where people are sitting is set up. It looks like 80s futuristic. Like, it really feels like an abandoned set from, like, Star Trek or something. Yeah, it does a bit, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my first incline when I first saw it was to say Art Deco, but then looking at this uh, picture, it's even more abstract than that. It feels like a bit of postmodern art that's meant to unsettle the people who are in the room. Like, it's like someone designed it in order to make you uncomfortable while you're in there. Yeah, I mean, certainly it, it looks extremely uncomfortable because it's all made of blocks. It kind of has, it kind of looks like a bunch of Tetris blocks fell and people just sat at them and decided to make a courtroom around it. Also got kind of a weird horror vibe with the skull-like face on the door yeah, <laughs> when yeah. they come in and sort of the, the, uh, the, the spinal feel of some of those blocks next to the door. It's wild. When this appeared, I was like, what am I watching right now? Sarah, how uh, symbolic is this or representative of the design of, of the show generally. When people talk about the overall aesthetic of Miami Vice, they either haven't watched the show very closely or they've chosen to block out the set design. Mm. You know, on location shooting is always gorgeous in this series. The set design is bizarre, and I don't know if they ever gave those poor people a budget. Um, <laughs> if you look at this set very closely when there's a shot coming up, I'm pretty sure that these ta these tables are styrofoam that has been oh, stuccoed. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's common too. Like there were points when I binged the entire series to be introduced to it where I was enthralled, but I'd be like, what is going on in the background? Is that plastic? And it would be just like some sort of plastic wrapping paper shoved in a corner to look like glass or something. Um, I think perhaps the most famous slash infamous set design in the entire series is in the episode Bushido, where there's a couple of Russian operatives working out of what's supposed to be a sex shop, but it's sort of like this candy-colored, like, abandoned candy store vibe <laughs> that has, like, a random sex doll hanging out in it. It's truly bizarre. Um, and yeah, I, I cannot explain what's happening with any of the set design, given how much attention was paid to aesthetics in every other way in this show. 
It's funny, too, because this scene has Crockett kind of like giving a statement to a lawyer about why, you know, the person should be kept in custody and all that. And it's just like he's sitting and the judge is there and they're all acting like it's a completely normal courtroom situation. And it's just blocks everywhere. The desks are fucking just blocks. And they're just like, yeah, we're lawyers. We're dressed like lawyers, just like you would expect, except they're just have to put all their papers on these blocks. It's like, I don't know. It is very strange. And there are other episodes that have actual like normal courtrooms in them. I love that. I love that. I just love, I wonder if Dick Miller had any influence on that whatsoever. Just like, nope, no, we need something a little bit more interesting than that. Why don't they look like they're in a weird caveman fever dream or something <laughs> like that? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's, I love it. it. It is very memorable, but certainly very bizarre. Um, Liam, anything else that you want to mention about this episode that stuck out to you at all? I mean, the, so I don't remember, I, I one of the other police officers who is monitoring the situation was a actor I recognize and I don't remember his name. Remember they you were mean one of the, the, the pair that are kind of like doing the, the Yeah. Yeah. The, they're like they're like monitoring the tap. Yeah, so it's either Michael Talbot or John Deal, I think, right? I think it's I think it would be Michael Talbot. But that kind of stuck out to me of like that's someone that I kind of know but I'm not that familiar with. But I was like, oh I recognize that. And the looks on their faces when I, I just think there's something complicated happening when they're when you're tapping someone to convict them of a crime mm-hmm. and you're hearing them suddenly develop a moral compass. You yes, know, absolutely. Look, I think they actually I mean, I, I don't want to lift their acting up too much, but I think on a show like this, there's a very easy way to handle that scene. And instead, both those guys look kind of like. Oh man, what the fuck do we do now? But then when they add the layer of he's asking his son to throw the game, it's like, okay, this is all getting really complicated, you know. And I just I I really appreciated that aspect of it, uh, in in a way. And maybe I'm overselling it, but for me, I just thought like, oh, I really like that. I really like the way they handled that. And then even the the realization from them of like. Is he gonna do something crazy? Like, obviously, only Crockett knows he's probably gonna kill that guy. But, uh, but they are at least concerned. Like, I just thought that was pretty well handled in and of itself. But the whole time, going back to your comment of like, well, we don't actually get a lot of Crockett and Tubbs in this episode. For uh, you know, we've kind of established on this show that we're not always big fans of copaganda. Mm-hmm. While the, those characters are endearing, it's not exactly selling the idea that the police are very effective in resolving the situation. <laughs> they're, they're kind of just there as observers, and nothing they do really helps at any point in particular. And I kind of, I kind of love that aspect of the episode. when they're bugging when they're bugging Bill Russell. Just that moment that you mentioned, yeah, it kind of stuck out to me as well. But what it, it stuck out to me. For, for kind of a strange reason which is that when they hear him like you said develop a moral compass it kind of feels like they're like oh well i guess we can't arrest him now <laughs> i guess he's <laughs> right it's like it's like all the stuff that they know he's already done it's like well looks like he's a good guy now so i guess we can't arrest him it just felt like they were like a little disappointed <laughs> that about everything was going on i think that was just my misinterpretation sarah anything else about this episode that stuck out to you well, um, it lacked a lot of my favorite character of all, um, sure. and so I feel I need to plug him, which is um, Marty Castillo, the lieutenant, um, Edward James Almost's character, sure, yeah. who mm-hmm. just basically shows up to advance the plot by saying, okay, do this, okay, do that, about three times in this episode. Yeah. 
but is just a completely fascinating presence once you get deeper into the Miami uni- Vice universe. Um, I think one credit- critic at the time, and I think it should have been praise, but was apparently a criticism, said that he looked like a Bergman character lurking around <laughs> in Miami. Um, he's very strange, somewhat morbid, always wears the same cheap suit. Um, so I was a little disappointed that you weren't introduced to any more of him in this episode. Um, but that said, even when Castillo, Tubbs, and Crockett get more involved, they're not going to be much more effectual than that because... You know, it's a failing system. They're failing within it. And they seem way more concerned about, like, taking care of their friendship and talking about their feelings than, you know, actually stopping crime for large parts (laughs) of the series, which I appreciate. (laughs) I was very excited to see Edward James almost because, of course, he wasn't in the pilot, the only other episode that I've seen. So I was like, I want to see more of uh, Eddie almost. But you're right. We only get little taste. But maybe... He shows up, I think, in the sixth episode. And even though the pilot is iconic, to me, the show starts when he shows up. Interesting. Well, maybe I'll have to investigate this a little bit more. Speaking of investigating a little bit more, this episode is directed by Dick Miller. You know, the topic of this podcast. Now, of course, Dick Miller does not appear in this episode whatsoever. And there isn't anything that you can kind of connect with his career on display, at least as far as I can tell. And like I said already, I couldn't find any information exactly regarding how he got this gig. So with that said, all I can ask the both of you, starting with you, Liam, how do you think the direction is on this episode? <coughs> you know, I think it's pretty solid. I I wish I could say that it stood out to me because this show being focused on Dick Miller, it would be nice to say like, wow, I really sense Dick Miller's take on this, on this material. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know how true that is, but I, I did think it was good. Like I, I just don't know that it, it, it doesn't stand out at all. It feels very like um, well done. But not in any any sort of like revolutionary like wow Dick Miller really did that you know but, sure uh, sure sure but you know but it's a solid piece of television uh, I wish I kind of had more of the show to compare it to and I wish I had an idea of um, I'm assuming the script sort of came to him whole so I can't right, say like right, right. oh you know of course Dick Miller ended it with that like dark bleak ending it's like no I think that's the show I think mm-hmm. Dick Miller's just there to make sure everything kind of happens the way it's supposed to uh, but you know I definitely appreciate it and as far as I could tell uh, it was a very well done piece of TV that I think probably represented sort of the vibe of the show or at least it sounds like it did I think what you were saying there about it whether it stood out or not. You're right. It doesn't stand out, but maybe that's a good thing, right? I mean, right, at least exactly. it shows yeah, yeah, yeah. shows that Dick Miller had the chops that, yeah, he certainly could have directed more episodic television of this era, even a higher-end one, because, you know, Miami Vice was known for being a much more expensive show than a lot of the shows at that time period. But, I mean, we're, we don't know anything. I've only ever seen one other episode. You've seen none. Let's ask the expert, Sarah. What did you think of Dick Miller's direction in this episode? Well, it does seem weird to come on a podcast dedicated to him and praise him for, you know, stepping back and embodying the spirit of the show more than any, like, actual artistic flourishes of his own. But it is a very effective television direction job because it is completely in keeping with the spirit of the series and very, you know, well done. There's nothing to notice. I was surprised to see this is his only directing job, right? Yeah, uh, ever. Not any other movie, not any other television show. 
because the other actor I know who only directed one episode of television was Robert Vaughn, who did an episode of The Protectors, and you can instantly tell why he only did one episode. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. Um, it, he's basically the anti-Robert Vaughn in that sense, and I think that's the only way in which I would call that praise. <laughs> we should note that Sarah is also a notorious lover of the Man from Uncle series. So if we ever can find a way to work that into one of our podcast <laughs> recordings, we'll have you back to talk about that. Uh, I have to say, I had a really good time with this episode of Miami Vice. I do think that uh, I was spoiled a little bit by having watched the pilot uh, so soon beforehand. And it certainly does not live up to that. But certainly it's also still clearly a superior production for 1980s television you can see a lot of what people loved about the show at that time period and you know I'm, I'm glad that we have you here sarah to give us more kind of perspective on how this kind of fits into the universe i'm guessing that um this is not a show that had a lot of of strict continuity would that be correct that's correct <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's 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 kind of par for the course of the era. But knowing that it all led up to something so kind of, you know, sad in terms of the ending of the series as a whole, I mean, that's kind of, kind of makes me want to check out the whole thing and watch it as a uh, as a kind of a complete unit. It'll um, test your investment along the way, but it really is worth it. That's it, because it's not entirely serialized. You can actually go through and watch a couple of the highlight episodes and then not, go back. It's not how my brain works, Sarah. Okay. I, I have to watch everything. That's just the way it works. <laughs> and also, right. I've listened to Philip Michael Thomas's album and Don Johnson's album at the same time. Yeah, heartbeat, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to love about Miami Vice and all the culture around it. All I can say is that if you are either a fan or any of this sounds interesting to you, yeah, please check out the episode The Fix. Let us know what you thought of Dick Miller as a director or just the episode or Miami Vice as a whole. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your beloved Miami Vice. It, of course, is always a pleasure. You've been a guest on Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man a few times. Always wonderful. Sarah, you have this book coming out, Work It Out, a mood-boosting exercise guide for people who just want to lie down. As I mentioned before, it's available for pre-order. You can do that through our show notes. When can people get this book in their greedy little hands? April 18th. It's a little bit of a wait, but it's finally coming, I promise. Uh, while we're plugging things, I also really need to shout out Morgan Richter, who is the person who introduced me to Miami Vice and an expert on it. She has a YouTube series called Miami Vice Changed, Changed Everything that's worth checking out. Um, and her debut novel is coming out either next year or the year after. But, you know, she grew up on Miami Vice. And if you like this vibe, you're absolutely going to love her fiction. That does sound terrific and of course uh sorry what was that date again april 19th that the book was 18th. coming out april 18th of course i got that incorrect if you have a calendar in front of you right now put a little circle there on 18th to make sure that you are running out to get that book or you'll be waiting by your mailbox to get it because you've already pre-ordered it liam as we all know you've been a sick little boy lately <laughs> um, but you are recovering uh, and in the meantime people other people have been picking up the slack there's been some great content uh, recently at Cineponics what's going on where can people find you on the internet well, you know, if folks head on over to CinePunks.com, they can find the latest episodes of this show, uh, but also new episodes of all kinds of other shows, including a uh, recent Twitch of the Death Nerve, where they traveled up to the archive and interviewed folks over at uh, OCN and Vinegar Syndrome, uh, The Return of Fat Girl Hacks, and new episodes of Tomb of Ideas, and all kinds of other fun shows over there. CinePunks, that's P-U-N-X. 
Com. Uh, they can also dive into the archive of this show, all the mm-hmm. different variations in which we talk about everything from Steve Buscemi to Eurocrime to uh, Carol Kane uh, at cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, and, you know, Cinepunks is on various social media, whether that's uh, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, CINE, PUNX. And we have a Discord if you're interested in joining the Discord. Uh, I don't know that we come up in just a general search. So just shoot us uh, an email or hit us up on social media and we'll give you the link to the Discord so you can join there and, you know, hop on some conversations and uh, maybe share some ideas or promote something that you're a part of. Uh, And if they just want to follow us on Twitter and hear about our latest episodes, they can go uh, find us at CinemaSmorg, S-M-O-R-G. You can, of course, follow Liam on Twitter at LiamRules, that's R-U-L-Z, and I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly, T-I-L-L-E-Y. I'm laughing a little bit because as of the moment that we're recording this, the future of Twitter seems like it's oh, very sure. much yeah, in jeopardy. Yeah. Um, uh, it, at, at the time, by the time I should say that this episode goes out into the world, who knows what we be going on. It's very chaotic at this moment. But certainly you can find us over, as you mentioned, at Cinebunks and over at CinemaSmorgasBoard.com. Sarah, do you want to p- plug yourself on Twitter while you still can? Yeah, I am there at Fodder Figure, F-O-D-D-E-R-F-I-G-U-R-E. Um, also on Instagram, which I think will still exist after this, but that's right. <laughs> well, of course, link those in the show notes as well. Yep. But for now, we need to take a little break. We're going to be back again with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everyone. Wait.